0: Continuing our series on Job, let's now look at Job's three friends who came and sat with him after Job had gone through all of his loss and suffering. And Job's three friends, who I mentioned last week, were from out of town. They were not Israelites, and so they were kind of foreigners to the land, but they had already built up a connection with Job. And they come to visit Job and find him after he has lost all his children and even his health, and they sit with Job for this full week without saying anything. And eventually Job speaks up at the end of that week. And once Job begins kind of talking with them, what happens is that these three friends begin to come up with explanations for why Job has gone through all of this suffering. And they each bring a different perspective and viewpoint on why they think all of these bad things are happening to Job. And we're going to go through their arguments one friend at a time, because each friend is kind of making one point in particular about why they think this is happening to Job. So we're going to go through it one friend at a time. But before we jump into all of their arguments and the things that they say, I think it's important for us to come at it with the perspective of how the book of Job ends. Because they spend a lot of time talking with Job and arguing with Job about their reasons for why it happened and why Job says that their reasons aren't correct. And at the end of all of this arguing, in the final chapter of Job, we see that the arguments that their friends make are not correct. This is in Job chapter 42, verses 7 through 8. It says, After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, who was one of Job's friends, God says, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So we see at the end, after all of their arguments, that God says that their arguments are not correct that they have not spoken the truth about God. And I want us to realize that before we go into these arguments, because many of the arguments that Job's friends make sound a lot like arguments that some believers make um, when they are preaching the Word of God. And it's not accurate. God is saying that these arguments that the friends make are not an accurate representation of who God is. And how God deals with his justice. So, with that in mind, let's jump into the words of Job's first friend, Eliphaz the Temanite. Beginning in chapter 4 of Job, verses 7 through 9, we have the first of the main points that Eliphaz makes about Job's situation. He says, Consider now who, being innocent, has ever perished. Where where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God they perish, at the blast of his anger they are no more. So Iliphaz is saying in these verses that there has never been anyone who has perished or been destroyed who has had God's judgment brought upon them who was innocent. It has always been a wicked person and that each and every person that God punishes is wicked. So that's the that's his opening statement. And then he continues on, also in chapter 4, verses 17 through 21. He goes on saying, Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can even a strong man be more pure than his maker? If God places no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error... How much more those who live in houses of clay, whose foundations are in the dust, who are crushed more readily than a moth, between dawn and dusk they are broken to pieces, unnoticed they perish forever, are not the cords of their tent pulled up so that they die without wisdom? So the first thing that Eliphaz had said is that God punishes wicked people, people who are not innocent. And then he goes on talking about how no mortal being can be more righteous than God. And if God even charges his angels with error, how much more the people of the earth. So he has said that God punishes wicked people, people who are not righteous. And then he goes on to say that everyone is unrighteous, that everyone is wicked and deserving Of God's punishment. And then after that, he says in chapter 5, verse 8, But if I were you, I would appeal to God. I would lay my cause before Him. So now he has said, Well, nobody's perfect, and God punishes wicked people, which includes everyone. But you know what, Job? Maybe you should maybe you should appeal to God. Maybe you should make your case before him. That's what I would do if I was in your situation. Now, if you remember from last week, that was the mindset that got Job into trouble, was wanting to say that God didn't understand his situation, and and if he could only find God and lay his case before God, then he would feel justified before God, even if uh, God still chose to punish him. And that mentality that Job gets, we see starting here, where Eliphaz says, If I was in your place, I would make my appeal to God. And it's interesting that Eliphaz says this because we see that he has the perspective that, well, nobody's going to be innocent. Nobody is going to be undeserving of punishment. But you know what, Job? You go ahead and, and and you just give it a shot. When truly he believes that Job's case wouldn't have a stand. Because God could simply say, you know what, you are a person, you are a mortal, your righteousness will never be enough to compare to my righteousness, and because of that, you are deserving of punishment. And there really is a hopelessness that comes from Eliphaz's perspective. We also see this in chapter 15, verses 14 through 16, where he asks, what are mortals that they could be pure?" Or those born of women that they could be righteous. If God places no trust in His holy ones, even if the heavens are not pure in His eyes, how much less mortals who are vile and corrupt, who drink up evil like water? So now, not only is He saying that people are inherently evil, but He then goes on to say, how can they ever become pure? It's impossible. There is no way that mankind, any person, could be righteous before the eyes of God. So in, this is, at its core, the argument that Eliphaz is making. That all people are wicked and that they cannot make amends with God for their sin. He is essentially saying that all people are doomed Because how could they compare to the righteousness of God? How could they meet the standard that God has? All people deserve to be punished by God. He's the kind of person that says, God, bring down the hellfire and brimstone and condemnation upon all people, for all people are wicked. All people deserve to be destroyed. No one can stand before God. All people are unrighteous. But there is a problem with this argument. There is a fallacy in what Eliphaz says. Because he is saying that there is no way for anyone to be made pure before God. But that's not what God says. In fact, God had given his people, the Israelites, a way, a path to righteousness through animal sacrifices, burnt offerings that they would give to God to cover their sin so that they would not be guilty of the price of their sin. And, of course, that process was then replaced by the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the innocent sacrifice who died on the cross for the sins of all people. So God has provided a way For mankind to become innocent and righteous before God. So, whereas Eliphaz is saying, well, it's all hopeless, God says there is hope for anyone who is repentant, anyone who is sorry for the things they have done, that come before God with a humble heart and accept that forgiveness of sin the price that has already been paid for their debt of sin through Jesus' sacrifice. Eliphaz says it's hopeless. God says, no, there is hope for anyone who is repentant. So that's the argument that Eliphaz makes. Now let's move on to the second friend, Bildad the Shuhite. And we'll begin by looking at what Bildad says In chapter 8, verse 4, he's talking to Job, who has just lost his children, lost all his livestock, and lost his health. And one of the first things that Bildad says to him, he says, when your children sinned against him, talking about God, when your children sinned against God, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. So he begins by saying, Job, the death of your children was because of the sin that they had in their life, and that's why God gave them over to their death. Now, this argument that Bildad begins by making is not unique to him. In fact, we can see when Jesus goes in his ministry to heal a blind man, that the disciples asked him, who sinned? Lord, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. And so, not only did that show that in that culture there was a recognition that a sin led to physical punishment in someone's life, but also that that sin, the price of that sin, could be spilled over into the lives of other members of that family. So, when Bildad is making the assumption that there was sin in the children, in the lives of Job's children that led to their death, he is also making the assumption that this is the cause of Job's sin. Perhaps his children's sin has spilled over into his life. Now, Bildad was probably not aware of one of the things I talk about talked about last week, that Job regularly made sacrifices for his children just in case they sinned without him knowing so. So Job automatically knew that that wasn't the case, but Bildad makes this assumption, and it's an assumption and argument made not unique to him, but from the culture that he lived in. He then goes on in chapter 8, in verses 8 through 10, to give this advice to Job. He says, ask the former generation and find out what their ancestors learned. For we were born only yesterday and know nothing, and our days on earth are but a shadow. Will they not instruct you and tell you? Will they not bring forth words from their understanding? So he's instructing Job here to ask the former generation, ask those who are older than Job, Go to them for wisdom. Rely upon their experience to provide Job with the answers that he is looking for. Now, after some discussion goes on and Job is able to make some rebuttals against the things that his friends have been saying to him, they then make a rebuttal back and they have responses to the arguments that Job makes back against them. And one of this one of these uh responses is seen from Bildad in chapter eighteen in the first two verses. It says, Then Bildad the Shuh-h- the Shuhite replied, When will you end these speeches? Be sensible, and then we can talk. So we see that after Job begins to make his own arguments against what his friends are saying, and at this point you can see why I use the term friends lightly, that Bildad's response to Job's counter arguments is essentially, Oh, that doesn't make any sense. I don't understand that. Uh so come back when you want to talk about things that I can understand. When you when you want to talk about the things that I'm talking about, then I'll listen to you. But until then, it's it's something I don't understand and I'm just gonna dismiss it because of it. He dismisses entirely the arguments that Job makes because it doesn't line up with the arguments that he was making and his idea for how things were supposed to be going. And then Bildad later makes an argument all the way over in chapter 25, and it's actually the whole 25th chapter of Job, but it's really short. And I'll read it to you and, and listen and see if this sounds familiar. Then Bildad the Shuhite replied, Dominion and awe belong to God. He establishes order in the heights of heaven. Can his forces be numbered? On whom does his light not rise? How then can a mortal be righteous before God? How can one born of woman be pure? If even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes, how much less a mortal who is but a maggot, a human being who is only a worm? Does this argument sound familiar? It should because it's essentially the same argument that Eliphaz was making. Bildad begins to claim that no one can appear as pure before God. So when I was looking through the arguments of all of these friends, I had a hard time figuring out exactly what it was that Bildad was arguing for Job's situation. Because he begins by assuming that Job's children has sinned, and then he goes on to tell Job to ask the former generation for advice, and then when Job makes an argument, he dismisses Job's word, and then he goes on talking about the same thing that Eliphaz was talking about. And so it almost seems as though his argument is changing every single time he speaks. And in a sense, it is because Bildad is making no original arguments of his own. He is making no explanation of his own design to provide Job in this situation. But instead, what we see him doing is simply parodying everything that is being said by the people around him. When he talks about Job's children sinning and maybe and basically implying that maybe that's why Job is dealing with this punishment, that it's a spillover from that. We see from Jesus' ministry that that was an idea that the culture had. And then he encourages Job to talk to other people about it, talk to wiser people. And then he begins talking about the, using the same argument that Eliphaz was using. And you see, what Bildad is doing here. Is he is actually arguing that Job misunderstands his situation simply because that situation doesn't match with what everyone else thinks. Job is providing his counterarguments, he's providing his defense, and Bildad simply won't listen to it because it doesn't fit into the box and mold of what everyone else has been saying on what he has grown up hearing other people say. So he doesn't provide any arguments of his own. He doesn't provide any unique explanation. All he's doing is saying things that he has heard other people say. He truly has no opinion of his own. No rational conclusion that he has come up with in his own mind, simply repeating what other people have said and saying that Job's arguments must be wrong simply because it doesn't match with what the culture believes that's his argument and the problem with Bill Dad's argument then is his appeal to the popular belief the majority belief the cultural beliefs and the problem with that is that the popular belief is not always the correct one. You can have a lot of people who believe the same thing without it being true. You can have many people who, you know, believed that the earth was flat for so long, and I know that some people still do, but that was the popular belief for so long, and now that's no longer the popular belief because of all the evidence that points otherwise. And you can think of so many other things that the belief that leeches were helpful to people who were sick because it sucked out the bad blood, that was something that many people believed. And just because something is widely believed by a majority of people does not mean that it's true. It does not mean that that belief is the correct belief. But that is what Bildad is using in his arguments. And so what I want us to learn from Bildad's argument is that our beliefs need to be founded on the unchanging foundation of the Bible instead of the ever-changing popularity of that belief in culture. One of those things will always change and one of those things will never change. And instead of Bildad just relying on what other people have said, he should have instead looked with what Scripture said and based Job's arguments against that. And that was the problem with Bildad's arguments. So we've gone through Eliphaz, and we've gone through Bildad. And we'll go through the last one now, Zophar the Namathite. Let's begin in chapter 11, Verse six, foreseeing the beginning of Zophar's explanation for why Job is going through so much grief, he begins by saying, "Know this, God has even forgotten some of your sin." So he begins by pointing out that God has forgiven Job for some of his sin, which really flies in contrast to Eliphaz, who is sitting right there. Arguing that that's impossible. There's no way to make amends with God, and so far as saying, "Well, I don't believe that. I don't think that's true," and I think that God has forgot, forgotten and forgiven some of your sin. But then he goes on in verses thirteen through fifteen in chapter eleven, and says, "Yet if you devote your heart to Him, and stretch out your hands to Him." If you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then free free of fault, you will lift up your face, you will stand firm and without fear. So between these two passages, so far saying that God has forgiven some of his sin and then telling Job that he needs to put away the rest of his sin, he is essentially replying that there is still sin in Job's life that he needs to repent from. This is his argument, that Job has a secret sin that he needs to repent. And only then can he be right with God. And this is probably an argument that I would say, out of all three of these arguments, Zophar's argument is the one that I hear most from believers today, who says that if there's any sin, or if there's any suffering in your life, if there are any problems in your life, that it only comes because there is sin in your life, and you need to repent from that sin. Now, Job... Remember, he had an entire chapter of talking about why he was innocent. And Job even, and I talked about this last week, Job had a mentality where he was saying, I just want to know what I've done wrong so that I can fix it, so that I can make a correction to whatever it was that I did wrong. So we see in Job's words and in his attitude that job is not hiding a secret sin away that he needs to repent from he's saying if i if i knew what i had done wrong i would repent from it but i don't know what i've done wrong and he makes that argument back against so far saying i haven't done anything wrong i don't know of anything in my life that i have not repented from anything that I haven't addressed already. Zophar says, there's a hidden sin in your life. You need to repent from it. Job says, no, there's not. And then we have Zophar's reaction to that in chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. Then Zophar the Namathite replied, my troubled thoughts prompt me to answer because I am greatly disturbed. I hear a rebuke That dishonors me, and my understanding inspires me to reply. So, first, he accuses Job of having a secret sin in his life. And when Job says, No, I don't have anything like that, Zophar says, Essentially, I am so offended that you think the answer I gave you is not correct. How could you possibly think that what I said wasn't true? Okay, this is clearly something that you're hiding that you need to address, okay? Let's let's not get off topic. You need to fix that problem. (laughs) And he sticks with that argument because he simply cannot wrap his mind around his answer, his response, his explanation not being correct. So his argument is that Job has a hidden sin that he needs to repent from. But here's the problem with his argument. It's really straightforward. Job doesn't have anything like that. Now we know that, as I talked about last week, Job did have some sin that was being displayed through his words that he felt he needed to correct what God was doing. He's like, okay, I'll accept that God has done this to me. I accept that God is in the throne. I'm not going to reject or curse God. But I want to make some corrections, especially going forward in the way that God works. So there was some sin in Job's life. But that's not what Zophar was addressing. He was saying that there was something before all of this happened that Job was being punished for that needed to be addressed. And Job was saying, no, there wasn't. And we can look at the life that Job was living up to that point, and that wasn't the case. So the problem with Zophar's argument that there was a hidden sin in Job's life was simply that there wasn't a hidden sin in Job's life that needed to be addressed. And when that was brought up, when Job said, "Uh, no, that's not the case, instead of Zophar readjusting at that point and saying, oh, well, I must have been wrong and I'll rethink my argument and and maybe we can try to find another reason. Instead, he just becomes really offended and says, I can't believe that you would rebuke me in that way and I feel so dishonored from it. And that really is a problem with Zophar, is he has one idea and he's so certain of that assumption that he won't listen to any reason that states otherwise. And if there's a lesson for us to learn from Zophar, it's that we must always allow room for our assumptions to be questioned and to reevaluate what we believe to see if it lines up with what is true, with what is true in God's Word and what is true in what we observe in the world we live in. So let's have a little bit of a recap. eliphaz argues all people are wicked and cannot make amends with God. Well, that's not true because God gave sacrifices in order to pay the price for sin, and now there is hope for all who are repentant. Bildad argues that Job must be misunderstanding his situation, Because it doesn't match with what the popular opinion is. But the problem with that is that the popular opinion isn't always the correct one. And that's why our belief must be founded in the unchanging foundation of the Bible. And then Zophar argues that Job is hiding a secret sin he needs to repent from. And the problem with that is that Job simply wasn't hiding anything. And so we need to learn that sometimes our assumption isn't right and allow our assumptions to be questioned so that we can find what is right. Now before I get to the final conclusion that I want us to see from Job's three friends, there's there's really two things that I want us to see from it. And the first comes from the words of Job in chapter 16, verses 1 through 5. Says, then Job replied, I have heard many things like these. You are miserable comforters, all of you. Will your long winded speeches never end? What ails you that you keep on arguing? I also could speak like you if you were in my place. I could make fine speeches against you and shake my head at you. But my mouth would encourage you. Comfort from my lips would bring you relief. And here we have. Really, the first problem with Job's friends as a whole was that they weren't being Job's friends. Job was dealing with the greatest loss and suffering of his entire life, and rather than encouraging and comforting him during that time, they began to make accusations against him and arguing with him so that their points could be validated, their perspectives could be validated rather than caring about Job, all they cared about was their own interpretation of what was going on. And that made them miserable comforters. And we should never treat others that way. But even that wasn't how God rebuked them. That was how Job rebuked them. Remember what we first read, that God's way of rebuking them was for misrepresenting who he was. And if there really is only one thing to take away from Job's friends for how we should live our life, is to make sure that we, as Christ's ambassadors on earth, who are to be shining God's light into the darkness of the world, is that we need to make sure that we are careful to represent God correctly. That was what God rebuked Job's friends for. They misrepresented him. They did not speak the truth about who God was. And what a warning that is for us to make sure that when we speak on God's behalf, when we talk about who God is and what he does, That we get it right. That we don't just make assumptions and run with it. Or we don't just say whatever we feel is right. But we make sure, absolutely, that we know what we're talking about. That we've studied it, we've researched it, and that it all lines back up with Scripture. We need to represent God correctly. So this has been another Sermon in the Pocket. I pray that you have been enjoying this series and that it's been insightful for those of you who have been listening to it. If you have any comments or questions about anything I've said, you can always contact me through the Sermon in the Pocket Facebook page or email me directly at sermoninthepocket at gmail.com. And I check that regularly. I'd love to hear from you and, and have a conversation with you about Any of this or anything else uh, theologically related or practically related, how do you live a Christian life? Any of those topics, I'd love to talk to you about that. And again, I encourage you to share this on social media and with family and friends to help get the message out there. So thank you for taking the time to listen. I pray that God will continue to bless you as you go throughout your day.